Amen. Well, thanks for having me tonight, guys. It is a blessing to be here in men's Bible study. I looked, and the last time I did men's Bible study was February 2020. So nothing has changed since then. Everything is exactly the same. Um, not quite. Um, one thing that's changed a lot, of, I don't know if you noticed this, but the restaurant industry has changed a little bit. Um, the restaurants that you find at the Eliso Viejo Town Center are not the same ones. I'm actually bummed out. One of my favorite restaurants, Macaroni Grill, seems to be gone. Have you guys noticed that? Macaroni Grill's gone. Yeah, it's gone. I think it's, I mean, the building's still there, but, I mean, it's gone, I think. They're trying to sell it. Uh, and there's not much to complain about with Macaroni Grill. I actually like that place a lot. But there's one thing I did not prefer about that place, because it was one of those types of restaurants where the waiters and the waitresses tried to sing to you. Do your, your wives like to go there, but you don't like to go there, right? Do you like to be sung to on your birthday? No? Yes? No, Right? That's the main answer says, no, are you kidding me? No, I don't like to be sung to on my birthday. Um, so that's one thing that I didn't really like about Macaroni Grill. Um, I'm bummed that they're gone, but it's interesting because if you are at a restaurant and you're a really good singer, but you're a really bad waiter or bad waitress, I don't really care that you're a good singer and, and working for me. If you can hit a high G, but you cannot refill my drink, I'm not going to be that impressed, right? Because their main job is to deliver food, right? That's their one job. And if they're not doing the one job that they're supposed to do, you feel it. And when people are working for you, you have a very keen sense of people not doing their job, whether it's your electrician or your plumber or your waiter or waitress. If they're not doing their main job, you feel it. Well, tonight we're looking at a man who had a job, a singular job. You know him as John the Baptist. And the thing about his life and his role and his ministry is there's something of his life and role of ministry that we share today. We don't have the same exact ministry, the same exact role, but there's something in common that I want to look at. Basically, John the Baptist's role was to promote Jesus Christ. It was to lift him high, exalt him. It was to serve him. And furthermore, it was to tell other people to direct their attention to him. Well, that's a job that we share, and we got to do it well, because it is our main job here on this planet. So if you would love to, I'd love for you to look at John chapter 3 with us together. John 3, verse 22 is where we're starting tonight. John 3, 22. We just studied that big, long text last week, Pastor PJ did, John 3, 1 to 21, talking about Nicodemus and Jesus, that conversation they have in the middle of the night. Right? It comes to them at night. Right? All the time, in the Gospel of John, night is significant, darkness even light and darkness is a big theme. Nicodemus comes at night. They have this conversation about being born again. That's the main theme. And then he says, hey, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him is not going to perish, but going to have eternal life. And then there's some explanation on that. Verse 22 says, after this. So after this conversation, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So remember where they are. They're in Jerusalem. They go outside the city. They're in Los Angeles. They go to Palmdale. Or Barstow, if they don't like their lives even more, right? They're going far out of the, the countryside. Why? Well, there's people that are still there. I mean, it's not the metropolis, but there are people there. There's things going on. It says he was there with them, and he remained with them and was baptizing. Now, be careful about that because chapter 4 says it wasn't Jesus that was actually doing the physical act of baptizing. It seems like it was the disciples, but Jesus was overseeing a ministry of repentance similar to John's. It says in verse 23, Jesus, or John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, which was up in the northern region of Judea. Really, it was actually on the west side. You might have looked this up in your questions before, but it was on the west side of the Jordan River, just south of the region of Galilee. So we are far away from 
Judea at this point. It's the outskirts. Jesus was in Judea. John was up north a little bit. It says there was water, plentiful water there. You can even look it up today. There's some springs, some hot springs, some, some places for water to come out there. So that's why we think we know where this is. Verse 24 says, for John had not yet been put in prison. So I want you to stop there and think about that. Why is that there? It's in parentheses in your Bible. Um, obviously, there's no parentheses in the original Greek. Why is that there? Well, because it assumes that you know something. It assumes that you know Mark chapter 1, which says, after Jesus is baptized by John and after he's tempted, then Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee and John was already in prison. So this is actually a helpful thing for us that this little verse, verse 24, is in this text because it tells us that what we've just been studying, John 1, 2, 3, and part of 4, took place before Jesus started his public ministry in Galilee. That's what it seems to point to. So it also assumes that you know the Synoptic Gospels. And also, think about it, it's one of the indicators that we have that this gospel is the latest gospel that we have because it assumes that we know what happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he's clarifying. Verse 25 says, now a discussion or a dispute, an argument arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, there's not much about purification here, um, but if you have been keeping track and you have a Bible software or whatever, you can look up that word purification and you've seen it come up time and time again in John 1, 2, and 3. Think about John 2. We've got Jesus turning water into wine. What does he use? What's the, what's the object? What are they using? They're using jars of purification. Then at the end of the chapter, what does Jesus go to do? He goes to the temple, and what does he do? Purifies the temple. Then he says, you have to be born again, regenerated. What is that a symbol of? Well, purification, right? So clearly, there's talk of purification. I think John wants us to see that here. We don't know what the question was. Also, if you know anything about John the Baptist and some other writings about him, you know that some people like to peg him with the Essenes. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if he's really involved with them, but they were highly committed to getting all the purification stuff right. So it just makes sense that John, the baptizer, has some question about purification. But look at what verse 26 says. It's not what you would expect, this question. It says, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. It's like, weren't we just talking about purification? <laughs> now they're just complaining about how popular Jesus is, right? So it seems like this question has something to do with Jesus. What's Jesus doing? What is this baptism all about? And without getting into it too much, hopefully you know basically that baptism was this rite that was used even before the time of Jesus to signify that you're joining this different group. You, it, it's a symbol, right? It doesn't do anything inherently with the water. I mean, some people believe that it does. Um, I don't think it was ever intended to do anything like that, but it was a symbolic representation that you are in a new group now. You're different now. John was baptizing people. What was that baptism of? Repentance. You're going to be a new person now. So clearly, purification, baptism, it's important. And he says, everyone's going after Jesus. Now, I know you probably haven't thought about being John the Baptist lately, um, but I want you to put yourself in his shoes, whatever his shoes were, right? Sandals and camel skin, right? Eating locusts and honey, right? Well, put yourself in his shoes. Your, your followers are coming up to you and saying, hey, everyone's leaving us and going to him. You see the problem here. It could tug at your pride. I think there's a temptation that John has right here, but look what he does. Immediately, he says, he answers. Verse 27, John answered. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
That's his response. When his small group is getting smaller and that small group across the street is getting bigger, when his church is reducing and the other church is getting bigger, what does he say? Well, it's not like any of those people were mine. I mean, my whole point here, as he's about to elaborate further, is to point people away from me. He's the herald, right? You've seen that picture, right? The herald comes into the town, announces the king is coming. The king is coming, right? Once the king comes into town, right, what's the herald supposed to do? Just, I guess, keep pointing people to the king. And when he's here, he fades to the background. That's basically what's happening here in John chapter 3. John the Baptist fades to the background. What can we learn about his humility? What can we learn about his attitude? Look what he keeps on saying. He says, you yourselves bear me witness. You know that I said, I am not the Christ. I am. Whenever you're in John, you see, I am. It's interesting because there's a very clear emphasis in this gospel on the fact that Jesus is the I am. Yahweh of the Old Testament. And even in this text, you're like, well, it doesn't say I am like that. Well, it's emphatic. Ego and me. That's in this text too. It's me, ego in this text, but it's still there. It doesn't need to be there. Why? John is making a point. John the Baptist is not the Christ. He's not God. And in contrast, he's saying, but the other one is. I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Gives an analogy in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom. We might call that a groomsman today. Or the best man. He stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, I am not the groom here. I'm not the one that's getting married to the people of God, so to speak. Right? And there's such rich language. If you know your Old Testament, you know oftentimes the people of God are compared to the bride. Right? Think of Jeremiah. What's the whole problem at the beginning of Jeremiah? The people of God have forsaken their marriage covenant to God. They've cheated on God. Right? Very clear in the Old Testament. Also, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5 says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Right? So clearly, Old Testament pictures that God's people are like the bride. Right? New Testament, you know Ephesians chapter 5. That's probably the first verse you think of. When you think of, oh, Jesus and the bride and the bride of Christ, that's the church, right? Yeah, well, there's a clear continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And John picks up on that and he says, that's not me. I'm not the groom. I'm not the husband. But look over there. That guy, he is. He's the one on whom all the hopes of Israel are set. And beyond that, the hopes of the world. Jesus. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. There's some rules in the Old Testament, and um, rabbis write about this, and we're not totally sure about this, but there's some interesting rules about being a best man. One of the things that people say right, that about the best man is that they were supposed to be the one that takes the bride to the groom, okay? and they were supposed to stand guard at the door, so to speak. Not so to speak. That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to stand. Uh, that's a weird job, right? So I'm um, glad that tradition's gone. But they were supposed to stand in front of the door to make sure nobody else comes in after the, after the wedding. That was their job, okay? So I think there's a reference here to, I hear the bridegroom's voice. He's coming. Yes, I, I'm ready for the marriage to happen. I'm ready for the people of God to be joined with their maker, Jesus Christ. I'm ready for that. I'm excited. Also, there was apparently um, a rule that you were not allowed to marry a bride, right, think this through, if you're the best man, you were never allowed to marry the bride in the wedding that you were the best man at, okay? Even if he dies, 
you're never allowed to marry that girl, right? Even if you're a single guy and this guy dies, you're never allowed to marry the bride. Why? Well, there's a time in the Bible, you might have remembered, Judges chapter 14, where someone was engaged to someone and his bride was given to the best man. What are we talking about? Samson, right? What does Samson do? He takes a bunch of foxes, lights their tails on fire, and burns up the village, right? So this is a good rule, not to marry the person um, that you are, you know, proposing to this groom, right? It's a good idea. So we think that that could be a part of it. But that further emphasizes the point, doesn't it? John says, who am I to take the glory of Jesus? I'm the best man. I can never take the bride because it's not mine. It's not my bride. It's Jesus' bride. Look what he says in verse 30, famous verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. In the plan of God, the will of God, that is what it was, that Jesus would be glorified and that he would lose his influence. Right? He's the only person in the world that's successful to make their small group smaller. Right? That's not a good thing, to lose people. Well, John the Baptist, it was good because his people were transferring to Jesus himself. Verse 31, we don't know who's talking here. Um, it's the same controversy that Pastor PJ, I think, talked about a little bit last week with verse 16 to 21. There's some debate with scholars whether or not verses 16 to 21 is Jesus continuing to talk or it's John the Apostle writing about what Jesus did. If it's theology from John, verse 16 to 21, we're not sure. I think Pastor PJ said um, he thinks it's Jesus, so we'll go with that. Um, same argument comes here. Are verses 31 to 36 John the Baptist elaborating further or... Is it John the Apostle giving a theology to explain that he must increase, but I must decrease? Ultimately, I think because of our view of Scripture, it doesn't really matter. But I do want you to know that there is that controversy. It could go either way. We're not totally sure. But it says in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. Right? Comes from above. That's a euphemism for heaven, right? He, he's eternal. He has a different origin than us. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Right? You could see how... Maybe John wasn't talking here. Perhaps he was, perhaps he wasn't. He's talking in the third person about himself. He's the one that comes from the earth. He speaks in an earthly way. That doesn't mean sinfully. It just means his ministry is different. He who comes from heaven is above all, just to reemphasize that. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Right? Talking about Jesus there, that Jesus is the one who speaks of what he has heard. Think through. What has Jesus heard? What has Jesus seen? What is he bearing witness to? Remember who Jesus is. God of God. Eternal. He's, he's existing before his human birth. What has he seen? He's seen things that you and I couldn't even fathom. He knows the depths of God's secrets, the mysteries, the plans of God. He knows those things. John 1 talks about that, right? John 1, 18. That Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. The ultimate prophet. Further, says that no one receives his testimony. That should remind you of John chapter 1 as well, right? John 1, 11. He came to his own people. His own people did not receive him. But there's a note of hope there, if you know that verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The ones who believe in him. Look what he says in verse 33. He goes on about that. He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. In other words, invert that. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, if you don't believe that he's the word, the logos, if you don't believe that, here's what you're saying about God. God, you are a liar. That's what you're saying. Reverse that. 
go back to the text. If you are a person who says, yes, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he has all the power of God and the authority of God. And when Jesus speaks, I need to listen. When you do that, here's what you're saying. God's telling the truth. Because this is God's testimony through Jesus. Think that through. When did God ever affirm Jesus? Well, he affirms him all the time. Think of his baptism. That's the most famous time, right? What does the voice from heaven say about the son? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then remember what the command was, listen to him. So when we don't do that, we're questioning the truthfulness of God here. Verse 34 says, he whom God sends utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. There's some debate there, right? Who is the one giving the spirit? Is it Jesus giving the spirit to Christians or is it saying the father gives the spirit without measure to Christ? I think that's the best interpretation here, that it's God who gives the spirit without measure to Jesus because this whole text is not talking about um, our spirit-filled lives. This section is talking about the divinity, the majesty, the importance of Jesus opposed to even the importance of John the Baptist. It says, verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand, including the spirit without measure, verse 34. Verse 36, the climax here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life right now. Whoever is trusting in the work of Jesus right now, you have eternal life. Not you'll get it. Not that one day maybe you'll have it later. No, you have eternal life right now. That's what he's saying. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. It's like you're not even gonna enter into the thing called life, not that eternal life, if you don't believe in the Son. Don't obey the son. See the, the difference? It looks like a sleight of hand. He said, whoever believes in the son, then he says, whoever does not obey. What is, what is he saying there? Is he saying obedience is obeying? Well, yeah, there's something to obeying Jesus and submitting to what he said about himself and believing that he's true. Because one who doesn't obey in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The only time this word wrath is used in this gospel, right here. The wrath of God is settled on those who do not accept Jesus as the savior, as the Lord. What's this passage getting us to do? Right? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to look at John the Baptist and see his humble attitude, his exalting of Christ, and say, I want my life to be all about that. I want to embrace the humble attitude of John the Baptist and say, I will do anything to exalt Christ. I will do anything for him. I will do anything to make him known. I will do anything to see Jesus promoted in this world. It's worth it because that is my one job. Just like it was John's, that's ours too. First thing he says is, I'm not the most important one. And that might be the hardest thing for us all to do, but point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. Embrace your supporting role. Embrace your supporting role. That is what we are. We are supporting the main thing. The story of your life, the narrative of your life is not about you. You're the supporting character. You're not the one driving the car. You're the one in the passenger seat. Maybe in the back seat, whatever. I noticed something after I got married. Um, I just want you to tell me, you can vocalize this, your wife isn't here. Um, my wife's the only one that's gonna hear this. Your wife isn't gonna hear this. Um, so when you're driving in the car, I'm kind of a newlywed. I've only been married for like two and a half years. So um, I'm still kind of a newlywed. When I'm driving and you know she's not really paying attention and then when she kind of looks up from her phone and sees a car within 100 feet of me, she jolts and screams, whoa, 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 everybody slow down. And then it freaks me out because I'm like, I, I see the car. Does this ever, it's not happen to you guys. I'm the only one. Does this get better? Oh, man, I'm in for it then with this. But um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm getting myself in trouble right now. I know, I know. Um, but it's annoying, right? 
And then I feel like really I don't want to do that to my, if my wife is ever driving, which doesn't happen very often, but like sometimes it's like I, 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 I do not want to annoy her because I know when, she, when she's like, oh, I, I, it freaks me out. I hit the brakes, and then it's just this argument. Like, what, what happened? Like, what just happened? Well, did you not see the car? I saw the car. I'm the one driving. You, are, you were on your phone, right? Yeah? This is going to keep happening. Great. Awesome. Here's the point. You know, when you're the passenger, you don't freak out the driver, right? Not that you can freak Jesus out, but certainly you could do things that don't advance his cause in this world. You could do things that take away from the mission. When you try to assume the role of driver instead of passenger. When you say, I'm the director, not the supporting role. Now, I I don't think that you need to be told that Jesus is more important than you, right? So we'll just say it in one sentence. Remember, Jesus is more important than you. It's more important than me, right? That's not what we need to hear, maybe. What we need to hear is probably that we need to be on guard against the temptation to think that Jesus is not the one who's calling the shots in our life. Because that could happen. I know that you're probably not going to walk out of here and say, yeah, Jesus is not the Lord of my life. He's not in charge. You're probably not going to walk out and do that. But here's what might happen. With the influence that God has given you, with the responsibilities and the business and the family and the small group that you lead, there is a temptation to step into the pass, uh, from the passenger seat into the driver's seat and say, I'm in charge of this right now. There is a temptation to do that. Because really, think about this. This is a man who has been given great responsibility by God. John the Baptist. If anyone should be taking control of the situation, it's John the Baptist. Who is this guy? Remember what Jesus said about the, John the Baptist? Greatest born among women, right? That means better than me, better than you, better than your grandkids, right? Better than anybody. John the Baptist is greater best preacher, most righteous, like he's the best. Jesus said he's the best. And even he says nothing. Remember what he says about Jesus? I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal strap of him. That's how much greater. That's the creator creation distinction that we need to have in our minds. This whole passage is about authority and influence. John has authority. He has influence, but it's all derived. It's all from God that's been derived through him that he's using for the time that God has allowed. And then when God says, it's not time for you to do your ministry anymore, John, what do we do? Move to the background. That's what John does. The higher you rise in your job or your family or your influence, the harder it might be to move to the background when it's time to move to the background, isn't it? You've seen that with businesses. How many businesses have you seen be led by people who hang on to control to their own company's hurt? You've seen that before? It reminds us of Ecclesiastes, right? There's a man who holds on to riches to his own hurt, right? This passage isn't talking about money. It's talking about spiritual influence. If you have been given spiritual influence by God, that is an awesome thing that you should praise God for, that I want to praise God for, for you. But you're the supporting role. Jesus is the ultimate. Romans 12 warns us of that. Romans 12 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, that you not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. We need to be careful, especially the higher we rise, the harder we can fall. John recognizes that every ministry post, everything he did, every sermon, all that was a gift of God. It was just derived, God's gift. James 1, 16 to 17 says, don't be deceived about this, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Don't be deceived about that. Our world is so deceived by that. Let us not be. Let us not forget that every authority, every small group that you lead, all of it is God's grace and influence that he's given you to be used for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'd love for you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 4, just really quick. 
before we get back into John, 1 Corinthians 4 talks about Paul saying that he has some authority, but it's all derived. He talks to this Corinthian church who is breaking up, making factions over their favorite teacher and preacher. And it was easy for Paul to step in and say, yeah, you guys should follow Paul. That's a good idea. Um, but he says, no, 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 don't break up like that. Don't follow your favorite teacher. That's not what you should be doing. There's no, there's no doctrinal differences between Paul and Apollos and Cephas. That's not what's happening here. It's personally based on personal preference. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 says, this is how one should regard us. Who's us? Verse before, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, right? These ministers. Those are some important guys, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, right? Peter, pretty important, more important than me, more important than you. Well, how should you regard them? Well, as servants of Christ, servants, the waiter, the waitress, right? That word actually sometimes used to describe a person bringing food, the servant, right? The one who walks out, you know, delivering the grapes to the rich guy, you know, in Greece or whatever. That's, that's the servant. It says that's what we're doing as preachers, as teacher, as ministers. We're just servants. And also another element of this, he says, we're stewards of the mystery, right? That's a little bit more dignified, but even that, stewards, what does that mean? Someone who's been entrusted with something valuable that we're supposed to use, right? Think of the parable of the talents, right? Those were stewards given money to invest. How do they do? We're stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? First Corinthians 2 says, the mystery of God is that Jesus was crucified for you. It's the gospel. That's what he's talking about. A mystery is something that was hidden and then now is revealed. He says, we've been given that by God and we're supposed to use it. He's talking about preachers and teachers in this text, but then look what he does in chapter or verse two. He moves beyond that. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they are to be found faithful. Whether you're Paul, Apollo, Cephas, or you, what are you required to be? Faithful in whatever God has given you. Faithful with the family God has given you. Faithful with the ministry position God has given you. Faithful with the influence that you have in, in this room and outside this room. You're supposed to be faithful. I'm supposed to be faithful. Look at verse seven. It says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Talking about ministry and influence here. That's what he's getting at. Then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's the temptation right there for us. John avoided that completely because he points it right back to Christ. But we, selfishly, sinfully, we could be people who boast as if we had not received it. As if we have it because we're the best leaders in the office. We're the leader just because we're better at things than other people. We're the leader just because we're the most spiritual, the most knowledgeable. Right? What do you have that you did not receive? That should inspire some serious humility from us. Paul's a good example. John's a good example. Corinthians are a bad example. One more bad example for you to write down. Third John, verse 9. Diotrephes. You know Diotrephes? It says he's the one who always put himself first. And in that context, he was not listening to the leadership of John the Apostle. Interesting, same author that we've been talking about. He does not listen to John the Apostle. And he says he doesn't submit to authority. He always wants to put himself first which is an interesting gauge for us on our humility. How do we do with authority? Right? If we chafe against authority in every shape and form, it's hard for us to say that we have the humility of John the Baptist. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. That's the negative side of this. John says, I'm the, I'm the best man. I'm not the groom. He understands his place. But after that, he says, it's my joy to do what I do. It's my joy to promote Jesus. He says, my joy is overflowing. Look at verse uh, number 29 in our text. 
Verse 29, talking about the bridegroom, it says, he stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. That's a picture of overflowing joy. He says, nothing makes me happier that people are going to Christ. For he must increase and I must decrease. I think the question for us is, do we find any joy in promoting Christ? Do we find any satisfaction and joy in lifting Christ up, even if it means we lose influence over people's lives? Point number two, find joy in promoting Jesus. Find joy in promoting Jesus. Now, that won't be so much of a challenge if we can accept that first point. Say, all right, I'm not the lead, I'm the supporting role. Find joy in promoting Jesus. Well, what does that look like for me? And I'm not John the Baptist. John the Baptist literally was the voice, right? Isaiah 40 says, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, behold, the way of the Lord, make way. He's the voice, Jesus is the word, the logos, right? You made that connection hopefully in your study questions, right? He's the voice. Jesus is the word. John's the herald. Jesus is the king. He's the one speaking, but the substance is Jesus. So I'm not John, though. I'm not John the Baptist. Not that same role. Well, remember, all of us in Christ, we have a similar role. Matthew 28, what does it say? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So that means if you are a disciple, you are to be a disciple maker. So none of us can skirt this right here, that our job is to promote Jesus. You have families, you have kids, wives, hopefully only one apiece. Um, wives just said like it was two, sorry. Um, you have responsibilities, authority. You have roles at work, at church. Think this through, promoting Christ. Is that the hallmark of your ministry, so to speak? And whatever shape or form it might take, it was John's hallmark. It wants, we, we should want it to be ours as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 says we've been given, entrusted like stewards with the ministry of reconciliation. The question is, men, what are we going to do with it? Will we be found faithful? God has given you the gospel. If you are a repentant, born-again Christian, you have the gospel, the eternal gospel that saves. What do we do with it? How do we use it? How do we speak about it? Who do we give it to at work? Family, extended family. What do we do with it? It says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and God is reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, representatives of Christ. God making his appeal through us. It's a hard thing to say he must increase and I must decrease if we have the wrong perspective on ourselves, obviously. But I think the more we get the right perspective on who Jesus is, the easier this gets right here. I mean, do we remember that we win in the end? Do we remember that Jesus is the king? Do we remember that he is the ascended God who sits on the throne right now? Do we remember that or do we forget that? If we look at the world and all we're thinking about is the world, right? Colossians 3, if all we're thinking about is things below and not setting our mind on things above. You know, we can forget that Jesus wins, that Jesus is the king. Like, he's going to win. Every knee will bow. Every person you think will not bow to Jesus, guess what? Philippians 2 says they will. They'll bow. It's not hard to get behind a winner. You told me that you invested some money in Zoom stock. Back the last time I did men's Bible study in February of 2020, um, you'd probably be pretty proud of yourself right now. Maybe some GameStop stock, too. Probably would have done well. Tesla stock, maybe? Now, I looked it up um, Back in March, Tesla was trading for $85. Um, it hit a peak, I think, in October. 
trade for $900. So uh, if you were like a profit with the stock market, um, I'm pretty sure you'd be quite proud of that, right? Um, or you'd be ashamed of it because you wouldn't want anyone to know that you made a fortune, right? Um, but here's the deal. It's not hard to promote winning. It's hard to promote losing for us. If we feel like we're losing here, if we feel like the work of God is ending with our generation, and for some reason that the world is falling apart and Jesus is not in control, you know what that can help us do? It can help us stop doing what we're supposed to do. But we remember Jesus is advancing. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus wins. When you promote Jesus, who are you promoting? The God of the universe. The one to whom every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether they do it willingly or forcefully, that's the God that you represent. That's the one we promote. I hope that that excites you. I hope that that fires you up. Something on the inside of you gets passionate and excited about that because Jesus wins. It's not hard to get behind a winner. I want you to get further into that. Verses 31 to 36 is this theological explanation, whether it's John the Apostle or John the Baptist, we're not sure. But I want you to just write down this point and we'll go through it slowly. But it says, deepen your gratitude for Jesus. I'd love for you to do that. Deepen your gratitude for Jesus. If we were to really dig in to the goodness of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus. It would help us promote Jesus. It would help us take that back seat. Really, this point three could be point number one. We could start here. I know we're ending here, but this is really where we should start thinking about what it means to follow Christ. John says some things about him. He says he's from above. There's five main Christological truths here. Things about Jesus that we have unpacked here in some detail that we don't usually get in the New Testament. First thing is, Jesus comes from above. He's from heaven. He is pre-existent. He is God, right? So this is helpful when you're promoting people. When you promote people, if you ever get behind something, maybe you've done this at work, you really get behind a project because someone that you really believe in is working on it, right? And you say, I'm willing to get behind that. But what happens to that project sometimes? Sometimes it fails, correct? Why? Because we're imperfect because it doesn't always work out, because we don't have all the wisdom of God. So when you get behind Jesus and promote Jesus, because he comes from above, here's what you have guaranteed, success. You have success guaranteed in the mission that God has given us, because he's from above, because he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's the faithful God that we see work all throughout the Old Testament. We see the wondrous works of God, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. That's Jesus. He's from above. John 1.14 says he's God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled here and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Second thing you see here, it's that Jesus, when he speaks, it's mainly from verse 32, 33, when he speaks, he bears witness to some things that he's seen and heard that you and I have not seen and heard. Okay, he has information from God that is authoritative and completely true. Okay, second big thing here, second Christological, Christological truth is that Jesus tells the truth with all the authority of God, okay? So whenever we look at this book right here and the world questions and they mock and they scorn, just know this, this is the truth from God that comes with all the authority of God. And when Jesus speaks about something, there's not a single thing that Jesus speaks about that he's not authoritative about. We all speak about a lot of things, some of us more than others, about things we're not authoritative about. I don't know um, very much about cars. Some of you do. Um, 
Bill. <laughs> um, you can speak authoritatively about things that you are the expert at. Right? I cannot speak authoritatively about being an electrician or a plumber. Um, I would just make a fool of myself, right? There's things that we all can't speak on authoritatively. Here's the thing. Jesus speaks authoritatively about every single thing he opens his mouth on, which is why when we turn to the scriptures, we believe in the inerrancy of scripture, the perfection of scripture, the truthfulness, the authoritativeness of every word. So when Jesus says here at the end, when this text says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. Guess what that is? That is solid, absolute truth that will never be refuted. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you. That these words, authoritative, solid, can never be changed. Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. That's who we promote. That's the Christ that we speak of. Problem is, Jesus addresses an issue in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's ultimately our problem, just to turn it back to ourselves. If we really believe that Jesus is the authoritative God, we have an issue. He says to do things that we say, I don't think, I don't think that's the best way to go about it. Pray for those who persecute you. Ah, but they're pretty evil people. I probably shouldn't do that, right? Okay, well, if we believe this, right, there's some things that might challenge us that Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Next verse, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man who is building a house, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and a stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it was built well. Ultimately, your life will be built well if it is built on the authority of God. If it's coherently doing what God says really trying to be in step, lockstep with God and his word. He speaks the truth from God. Next thing he says, that the father backs Jesus in everything. So if we're ever confused about the Trinity here and we're ever confused, well, maybe Jesus speaks, but that's not what God meant. Well, let's not be confused because verse 33 says, whoever receives his testimony sets a seal that God is true. God is behind every word that Jesus says. Point, not point number three, but the third thing is Jesus is 100% backed by God. Everything he says, that's why it's authoritative because it's completely backed by God. You align with Christ, you align with God. Right? How many times have we seen in this gospel? I guess we're gonna see it more as we go through it, but you don't receive the son, guess what? You can't think you have the father while you reject the son. That's what the Pharisees tried to do. That's what these religious leaders tried to do. They tried to look to the scriptures and say, we want the scriptures and we want God. We don't want Jesus. Jesus says, that's impossible. You can't do that. You reject the son, you reject the father. Then he says that he gives him the spirit without measure. I think it's interesting that if John the Baptist is the one who speaks this, there's an extra level of irony that we have right here. John the Baptist when did he get filled with the Spirit? Think this through, Bible trivia. When did he get filled with the Spirit? Prenatally, right? Kicking around, filled with the Spirit? That's weird, right? We're not used to that. Right? Maybe you got saved as a young kid, not that young, right? You didn't have the Spirit as a baby, right? That's different. John the Baptist had the Spirit as a baby. Here's what he notices about Jesus and glorifies Jesus for. He has the fullness of the Spirit of God. Perfect, Spirit-led life, every decision, action, motive, thought, perfectly aligned with God. 
That's the fourth thing. Jesus exemplifies a spirit-led life perfectly. He does it absolutely, truly, perfectly. The interesting thing about Christianity is it says that now you and I as Christians are to be transformed into his image. Romans 8, 29, right? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's talking about you. Conformed to Jesus' image. Last thing he says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. I want you to think through how big of a radical claim that is. Jesus gives eternal life to people. He gives it to you. It means if you're in Christ, you have it. You have obtained it. Yeah, you'll, you'll step into the full reality of it later for sure, but you have it right now. You have that different quality of life. He gives eternal life. Right? John 17, verses 2 and 3, describe what eternal life is in some clarity. It says, here's what eternal life is, right? that you would know the only true God and that you would know Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. If you know God, guess what? You have eternal life. John 5, 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has, present tense, right now, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, which is, is exactly the picture that we see here. It's like you were living in death, God's wrath on you, firmly in your sin, enslaved, entrenched to all your sin, headed for hell, fully deserving of God's wrath. And what does God do? Transfers you from death to life in an instant? Yes, in an instant. Through a long process, through some, some long form of repentance or, or penance or confession. No, in an instant, God moves you from death to life. How? Jesus. That's how. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Our world right now, living in ungodliness, God's wrath has been revealed against that. Very clearly, in sin, wrong. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9 says that those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus, which interesting, here it says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. He's not saying that you can somehow merit eternal life by works. That's not the point. He just said that whoever believes, trusts, wholehearted trust in what Jesus has done for you. That's how you get life, not by working. But the interesting thing is when you don't believe in Jesus, know this, you are commanded to believe. So when we don't believe, if a person chooses, they hear the gospel and they say, nope, not for me. Guess what that is? Here, not obeying the son. In John 6, Jesus is asked, what's the work of God that we should do? What's the thing we have to do? He says, here's the work of God that you believe, that you would trust wholeheartedly in Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9 says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey. That's the key phrase there, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. That would be you, that would be me, if Jesus did not do something about it. When we think of promoting Jesus, the thing that's most obvious, I guess saving the best thing for last, is we forget sometimes when we don't promote Jesus at work, when we're ashamed to talk about him, when we're ashamed to bring people to church, here's something that we often forget. Jesus gave his life for me. Jesus died, he's risen for me. How do we stay humble like John the Baptist? Well, I think that right there is the key, that we continue to grow in gratitude to Jesus for what he's done. And ultimately, it's to get out of the way. It's to present Christ and then to step out and say, I'm out. I want you to be associated with Christ. 
if you follow golf at all. Um, John said that I'm a Yankee fan, which that's true. Um, but my real loyalty, my first love, is the game of golf. I don't know if you've noticed this, if you uh, follow golf Twitter. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, but there's a big tr- controversy a while back about the, announce- the announcers, the people who uh, talk about golf. The problem was Nick Faldo is just talk, talk, and talking the whole time. And he just gets a bunch of, you know, a bunch of flack on Twitter because he's always just talking, talking, talking. And the big complaint is, dude, just, just, just shut up. Like, stop talking, dude. You're, you're not that fun. Like, just be quiet. Right? That's the complaint. Why? Well, it's like, we want to see the golf. We, we, you don't have to tell us what's happening. That's the worst thing about golf announcing. They tell you what you're looking at. It's like, I know what I'm looking at. I saw that he missed the putt on the high side. I saw that he, he, he hit it in, in the rough. I already saw that. You don't need to tell me that. Right? That's good for the radio, but not good for TV. Right? What's the key to good golf announcing? Get out of the way. Let it happen. Show the moment. That's what we have to do, too. If we're announcing something glorious, we need to, at some point, announce it and get out of the way. Show them who Christ is. Introduce them to Christ. And then not hinder the mission by getting in the way at all. It's important for us to think this way. If we're going to commit to do this one job, promoting Jesus, we've got to get it out of the way. Let's pray that we would do that. God, we're thankful for the awesome influence that you have given people in this room to make big differences for the gospel. We just thank you for their faithfulness and their work for you. Pray that as we consider these things that we would work hard to adopt the humble mentality of John the Baptist, that we would be all about promoting Christ, not ourselves, that we would willingly lose influence if what that means is that you would get more glory. Pray that you would help us with this mindset. Pray that we wouldn't want to jump in the driver's seat of our ministry, but we'd recognize that you are there firmly and for our good that you'd help us with this mindset, that we would grow in humility, we grow in gratitude for all that you've done for us and all that you are. We're thankful for Christ, and we pray that we would grow in gratitude towards him every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.